You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And now with your Bibles, we turn to John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 2 and 3 this morning. When you found your place, let's bow our heads before we begin. Our gracious God, we thank you for the blessing of your word. You, you are great, great in majesty, majesty, great in grace, great in your condescension to love us and to give us a revelation of yourself. We pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would have your spirit to be our guide and to illuminate your word to us. Open our hearts to the truth that we may behold things in it, wonderful things, and that we may delight in the promises of your word. Encourage the faint-hearted and comfort the afflicted, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a, a child, I had very uh, childish visions and ideas of what heaven was going to be like, and many of you maybe uh, share kind of what my perspective of heaven was uh, when you were a kid. I grew up exposed to ideas of heaven and hell because I grew up in what I would call a quasi-religious family. And by quasi-religious, I mean it wasn't explicitly a Christian home, but if you went back a few generations, you could get to some pious folks on sort of both sides of the larger family. I had two great-grandmothers who, uh, on both sides of my larger family, both uh, had a religion, religious convictions. On one side was a grandmother that I didn't know too much about because she died when I was eight or nine years old, and I didn't spend a whole lot of time uh, up at her house except to go up every once in a while when the relatives got together, and we would have a, a, a treat, which is one of these treats that I think will actually be in heaven. It's called dill soup, and this was my great-grandmother's recipe. She would make, she would make uh, soup out of dill, and it was delicious. Dave's shaking his head because he doesn't think that's going to be in heaven, but it will be. (laughs) And I I didn't know that grandmother very well at all um, because we didn't spend too much time up there. But I know that by all accounts, she was a a genuine believer, at least she seemed to be from what I have heard from people. Uh, Her husband was not a Christian, didn't make any kind of profession of faith in Christ or have any kind of religious conviction. And all of the children and grandchildren seemed to have followed after the grandfather instead of the grandmother. Um, on the other side of my family was a different great-grandmother. She was a Seventh-day Adventist. And she was not shy about talking about the things of the Lord or the Ten Commandments or the Bible or heaven or hell. And I spent a lot of time with her. And uh, she used to remind me constantly that hell was the place where all the bad boys went. And I think that she had an ulterior motive in reminding me of that because it made her babysitting me much easier to remind me of that periodically. And heaven was the place where you would go if you kept the Ten Commandments and you obeyed the Sabbath and you didn't eat pork and you didn't swear unless you were looking at the barn. Do you remember that? I told you years ago about that, grandmother. You could swear as long as you were looking at the barn when you swore. It was wrong to swear if you weren't looking at the barn. So that was my grandmother, great-grandmother on that side. And I spent a lot of time with her, and she would talk about heaven and talk about hell. But most of my ideas of heaven and hell, though I wasn't convinced as a child that heaven and hell were realities, most of my conceptions of heaven and hell were really something taken from cartoons and caricatures and and our culture, uh, they would have, my ideas of heaven would have more in common with a Gary Larson Farside comic than anything that you would find in Scripture. And the same thing with hell. I, I pictured hell as the place where the devil was happy, the devil was content there because that's where he was at. And he liked hell because he got to walk through the salt mines of hell, as it were, and poke everybody with pitchforks. 
and make sure that the heat was turned up. That was kind of the my idea of what hell was, that he was there to torment those who went to hell, the bad boys. What my grandmother wanted me, didn't want me to be the good boy. And heaven was somewhat similar to that. Heaven was, uh, but uh, in, in a completely opposite, my, my caricature of heaven was somewhat similar in the sense that it was just as off base. My idea of heaven was a disembodied state where we just were, where God was and, and we was. And it was, we were just all in a disembodied state, floating around, spirits, not saying much, not doing much, not thinking much. A lot of music probably surrounding and really an eternal bore. That was my idea of heaven. And they would talk about what heaven was, was like, and that was the picture that I got. And I thought, why, why would I want to leave that? Heaven, for me as a child, was the polar opposite of everything I liked about this world. I liked having a body. I didn't want to not have a body. I, didn't, I don't like this body, but I like having a body. I can enjoy things. I can do things. I can touch, feel, smell, see things. I, I wanted that. I wanted the, the sensations of living in a body and having a body. And the idea of being in a disembodied state where I just existed in some sort of a divine sphere where I really didn't think much or do much or enjoy much, that didn't appeal to me. And the idea of going someplace and spending time with Jesus, my great-grandmother used to tell me, that's where God is and that's where Jesus is. Don't you want to be there? And I would think of all of the illustrated children's Bibles that I'd seen. And Jesus looked like a sort of a robe-wearing, long-haired, uh, kindly gentleman. But look, as an unbeliever, I didn't have any desire to go be with him. I didn't know this man. I'd never met this man. What, what was I to expect? There was nothing appealing about that. And the idea of being with God, there was nothing appealing about the idea of being with God either as an unbeliever. So whether I went to heaven or hell, to me, both of them were a demotion. From this world. I didn't want to leave this world. Neither of those was a promotion. Because both of them would be boring. Though, admittedly, for me, heaven would have been far more appealing because it was absent the fire and absent the pitchfork being jabbed into my ribs every couple of millennia. So that seemed like an appealing option, though obviously a boring option. My idea of heaven, as unbiblical as it was, would never have served as a comfort for anybody. But when Jesus wants to comfort his disciples in John chapter 14, he gives them information about heaven. And the biblical picture of heaven is something that would comfort us. It would sort of calm our fears. It is intended to calm our troubled hearts. And so that's where we're at. John chapter 14. And we've been looking at a picture of heaven or a description of heaven that Jesus gave to his disciples on his final night with them. John chapter 14 is the upper room or farewell discourse. Jesus is alone now with the true disciples, the false disciple Judas has left his company, and now Jesus begins to give truths to the troubled disciples. John chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then the very first truth that Jesus leads with is the truth about heaven. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. In verses 2 and 3, there are three promises about heaven. We looked at the first one last week, that heaven is a prepared place, and we're covering the second two today, that He has promised to prepare a prepare residence for us. That's the first one. The second one, that He has promised a per, to personally return for us. And then third, to permanently or perpetually reside with us. That is what heaven is. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. It is a He is coming to personally return and to gather us to Himself. And then third, heaven is the perpetual residence with Jesus Christ and with the Father forevermore, wherever the Father is. Those are the promises that he gives regarding heaven. So we looked at the first one, that heaven is a prepared place. In my Father's house are many rooms. That is, 
uh, Jesus likens heaven to heaven, heaven to a palace. And in that palace are many dwelling places, many separate residences, uh, many places for his people. And the idea is, is that we have prepared for us a place which is home. It is secure. It is safe. Uh, it has all the comforts and the familiarity of home because it is the Father's house. And we, when he comes back to get us, we will go home to be with the Father. And when we arrive there, it will be like we have stepped into a prepared home for us, a place prepared for us by the shepherd who knows us better than we know ourselves. So heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Now second, his promise that he will personally return for us. Look at verse 3. If I go, and the if there is not any kind of uncertainty, as in hey, I may or I may not, but it is more like since I go. He has promised that he will go, and if he does go, which he has promised he will, and so he is, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That is his promise of a personal return. Now what had troubled the disciples was being told back in chapter 13 and actually in chapter 12 and for several months prior to this as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem that he was going to suffer and die at the hands of sinners that he was going to die and rise again. He had been telling them that he was going to leave them and now in this final moments with his disciples in that upper room in John chapter 13 he is sort of focused in on that in the end of chapter 13 he tells them I am going and where I go you cannot come and he's speaking of heaven. They didn't quite get this at the time but this idea of him leaving and them not being able to go with him, whatever that meant, wherever that was, this troubled the disciples. So since they were troubled by his announcement to them that he was going to leave them, he promises that this leaving is only going to be temporary. If I go, and I will, I will go and prepare a place for you. There is a a purpose to his leaving. And he is preparing the place for us, and here here is the promise. If I go to prepare that place, I will come again and receive you to myself. So being troubled at the idea that they would be left alone, he promises, it's only temporary. I will return and I will gather you to myself. Now here's the question. What is this coming referring to? As Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 3, if I go, I will prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. What coming is that? What coming is that? Now admittedly, it is impossible, no matter what your eschatological view is, your view of the end times, whether you're premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, or any, any sort of combination of all of those. It is impossible to read statements like this without reading those statements in light of the eschatology, the theology of the end times, that we bring to the passage. So no matter what your theology is about the end times, you read these verses and you say, okay, here's how that fits into how I think this is all going to unfold in the last times. I believe that the return that Jesus is describing here is not his physical return to this earth to set up his kingdom, which I believe he will do. I'm a premillennialist. But I believe that the return that is being described here to gather his people to himself is what we refer to as the rapture. It's the rapture. Now, I'm saying this not because, what was it, the movie End Times? No, uh, Left Behind was just in theaters this last week. He said, Jim, you, you read too many End Times novels and you watch too many End Times movies. I don't do any of that. I'm not convinced by any. I don't like any of that stuff. But I do believe that there is going to be a rapture and that the coming that Jesus is referring to here to gather his people to himself is the rapture that will take his church out of this world prior to the judgment that he pours out upon an unbelieving and impenitent world who has rejected him. That the church will not suffer through that uh, affliction. Uh, I believe some of the details of this text that are here actually help us pin that down or or attach this coming that he's talking about here to the rapture. For instance, a lot of the details are very similar to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll read the passage to you, beginning in verse 13. 
The Apostle Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, there are a lot of similarities between the details of John 14 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For instance, in both passages, we are told that Jesus himself will personally return. I will come again and receive you to myself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. That is a personal return. Further, in both passages, Christ gathers his people to himself. In both passages, that group of people is always with the Lord, and both passages are intended to comfort. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, John chapter 14, verse 1. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That is the blessed hope, that is what the church looks forward to. The coming of her bridegroom, will he will take us to be with him. We shall always be with the Lord, and that is a source of great comfort to us. There's a parallel passage, 1 Corinthians 15, that describes the transformation that will take place at the final resurrection, that when we get our resurrected bodies, it is at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Paul says in verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That is his promised return. Now, I do not believe that the return spoken of in John 14 is his second coming when he returns to establish his kingdom because Jesus doesn't say in John chapter 14, look, let not your heart be troubled. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'm going to set up a kingdom and I'm going to come in power and in great glory with the angels. He doesn't say that. Instead, he just says, I'm going to return and I'm going to gather you to myself and thus you will always be with the Lord. According to Matthew chapter 24, the second coming of Christ when he comes to establish his kingdom, that second coming will be the angels that gather the elect But with the rapture, it is Christ himself who comes for his bride, the church. The imagery being used in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4 and John chapter 14 is the imagery of a bride waiting for her bridegroom. He has come and he has proposed and he has married and then he has gone away and he prepares a place for the bride and then he comes again and receives the bride to himself and takes the bride to be with him and thus they are always together. That's the imagery that is being used in John chapter 14. Now you say, Jim, are you telling me that John chapter 14 is the text that you would turn to to support your view of the rapture? No, it's not. But there's nothing in John 14 that contradicts my view of the rapture. In fact, every detail here fits in perfectly with what I see of the rapture taught in passages like 1 Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So this is not the passage I would turn to to build a case for the rapture. But this coming that is described here is described in the same terms that the rapture is described in other passages. In other passages. So, the com- what is this coming? It is the rapture of the church. 
And that is what the blessed, that is what the blessed hope is and what the church looks forward to. Now, does that mean, does that mean that since the church is going to be taken out of the world prior to the pouring out of that judgment, does that mean that we sort of give up and coast and don't share the gospel and don't care? That we gather together our left behind novels and our Bible and, and tune on Fox News and sit on rapture watch and, and watch left behind videos and eschatological things and, and read the writings of Hal Lindsey and, and give up on everything because the world is going in a handbasket somewhere? Is, is that our view? That's not our view. Though I do believe that this ship is sinking, the purpose of evangelism is to get people into the lifeboats so that they might be saved. And so we ought to be, by that teaching, even more motivated to share the gospel than we ever have before. Further, does that mean that if Jesus is coming back to take us out of this world, does that mean that the church will never suffer any kind of affliction or that the church will never suffer any kind of hardship or persecution? No. Do you know what the church is suffering today? Hardship and affliction and persecution. We have been protected from it to a degree. But friends, my hope is not that Christ is going to come back before it gets tough for us. Why would He cherish American Christians more than He has cherished any other Christians? It may be that we suffer persecution. It may be that we go through a tribulation of sorts. But the blessed hope is that the church will be saved out of the judgment of God described in the book of Revelation, which is not intended for His people, but is intended for those who reject the gospel and reject Christ. Now what we read here when Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. It is in some ways not what we would expect to read in that passage. We might expect him to say, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare the place for you, I will come again and take you to that place. But you notice he doesn't say that. What does he say? I will come and receive you to myself. And this takes us to the third promise regarding heaven. Not only that it is a prepared place for a prepared people and that he has promised to personally return, but third, he has promised to permanently and perpetually reside with his people. Now what troubled the disciples was the thought that he would be away from them and that they would not be with him. And so Jesus gives them the comfort that he is going away to prepare a place, but that he will come back again for his people and he will gather them to himself. And here's the, here's the central point. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Never more will there be a time when we are separate from Him or distant from Him or do not fear, feel His nearness. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. And when Christ comes back and takes His bride to Himself, His bride will always be with Him. We will return with Him and come back to this planet when He sets up His kingdom. We will live and rule and reign with Him in this kingdom, in that kingdom, on this earth, as His bride, as His church, we will be there, we will be with Him. And when that is over and He destroys this earth, we will be with Him. And when He recreates a new heavens and a new earth and, and all of His saints go to be there with Him, we will be with Him. All the way through all of those end times events and forevermore, we will be with Him, never to be away from Him again. Now admittedly, this is more difficult for us to appreciate than it would have been for the disciples to appreciate. Now why do I say that? Because we don't know what it's like to be with Him, do we? I mean, we sense His nearness. We fellowship with Him in prayer and in the reading of the Word. We see Him in Scripture. The Spirit testifies that to our hearts. But I don't know what it is like to sit down next to a, a campfire with the Lord Jesus and talk with Him face to face. I had an interesting phone call this last week from a guy. Speaking of this nearness. I had an interesting phone call this last week from a guy, and he's not sitting here. He's on the other side of the country somewhere. He ran across some stuff I had written on the Internet about hearing the voice of God. And this was of great benefit to him, he said, because he was reading through it, that we don't hear the still small voice. God doesn't speak to us through these little revelations that we get. 
He said, that was of great benefit to me because he said, me and a friend, uh, a friend and I who are counseling this lady that we know, we are counseling a lady who says, and this is her words, that she is married to the voice in her head. That she has such regular conversations with somebody in her head that this is her spouse. Now, I've never had that happen to me, and you should be very thankful that that has never happened to me. Um, I do not have that type of sit-down fellowship with Jesus Christ. I've never seen a vision. I've never sat down at a table and, and talked with Him face-to-face. I enjoy fellowship with Him after a sort, after a fashion, but it is nothing like the disciples would have enjoyed in being there with Jesus personally and privately. They knew what it was like to have a one-on-one conversation, to literally hear His voice and to fellowship with Him. So the thought of Him leaving, the thought of Him leaving, of course that would trouble their hearts. Of course that would trouble their hearts. All of a sudden that fellowship is gone. That one-on-one context and that one-on-one conversation is gone. And he's going to be away from them. And they can't sit down and enjoy that anymore. We can kind of get an idea of what that would have meant to the disciples. But but not really fully can we appreciate it. They would have. They would have understood what that meant. He's, he's, he's leaving. And we're not going to have him anymore. So here's his promise. When he comes again, he will receive us to himself, that where he is, there we will be also, that we will be with him. That is the essence of heaven. That's the essence of heaven. You and I can think about the place that he has prepared, the room that is ours, what awaits us there. There are a lot of things about heaven that we look forward to. I look forward to a new body. I hope it looks nothing like this one. I know that it will feel nothing like this one. I look forward to a new body. I look forward to being without sin. I look forward to no curse, no disease, no death, no sorrow, no sickness, no sadness, no weeping, no parting with loved ones, uh, no deceit, no injustice, no unrighteousness, uh, not, no iniquity, no sin abounding anywhere, only a righteous ruler, only a righteous king. I look forward to all of that. But all of that without Christ is not heaven. In fact, all of that together is not what makes heaven heaven. You know what makes heaven heaven? The fact that Christ is there. That's where God is. And to be with Him where He is, that's what makes heaven heaven. That's what Paul says is far better. Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. For Paul to leave and to depart this life was not to go to the room prepared, or to go to the Father's house, or to go to that place, or to go to paradise, or to enjoy a new body. It was none of those things. Well, for Paul, what was it? I want to depart and to be with Christ. That's far better. That's what makes heaven heaven. It's okay to dwell on the, the houses and the, and the rooms and the intimacy of that fellowship and, and what we get to enjoy there and what we get to experience there in a new body and freedom from sin. All of that I do look forward to. But more and more I look forward to, and I want to look forward to more and more, being with Christ where He is. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. To be dead for Paul was to be with Christ. That's what he wanted. That's what makes heaven heaven. To be with Christ where he is. To enjoy his fellowship. To hear his voice. To look into his eyes. To see his face. To see the one who died on a cross for me. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world for my sin. That's what I long for. That's what I look forward to. Is seeing and being with Jesus Christ. Now compare that for a moment with the anticipation that is offered in books like 90 Minutes in Heaven. I mentioned this last week, and I bring it up again only because 
It is a plague that plagues us. This dunghill of books about going to heaven and seeing him and coming back and all of that. And it is so popular. I want to contrast what is popular in evangelicalism with the truth. Don Piper in his book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, says that he spent 90 minutes in heaven. You remember from last week, it wasn't really in heaven. It was outside heaven, at the gates of heaven. Never actually went into heaven. Just as he was getting ready to walk in, that's when the Lord took him back into his uh, into the accident, the scene of the accident. And he admits in the book that he never saw God. He never saw Jesus face to face. So for Paul, to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. To depart and to leave this life is to be with Christ. But for Don Piper, he can do that for 90 minutes and never see God and never see Jesus. Now, in fairness, since... In the last 20 years, his story has changed us a little bit because now he will admit in his public speaking appearances that he did see God, though at a distance, far and lifted up, and he saw the glory that was the God. It's hard to keep your story straight sometimes, right? We've had presidents who kind of demonstrate that that's the case. It's hard to keep your story straight sometimes when you're making stuff up out of whole cloth, but that's what he does. So in his book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Don Piper writes this. He compares heaven to a grand family reunion. Now listen to his words and what he says are the best things to look forward to about heaven. On page 25, he writes, None of those earthly family reunions, however, prepared me for the sublime gathering of saints I experienced at the gates of heaven. Those who had gathered at Monticello were some of the same people waiting for me at the gates of heaven. Heaven was many things, but without a doubt, it was the greatest family reunion of all. He says in his book he experienced all kinds of love and joy and peace and and grace, and and thrilled his heart. He calls it a a banquet for the senses. That's a quote. A banquet for the senses, where he he got to hear the music and hear the songs of angels and see all of these sights, and the colors were better, and everything was better and more intense in heaven than it is here. He writes on page 27, just being with them was a holy moment and remains a treasured hope. Just being with his family, his friends, and the people he met there remains his treasured hope. In chapter 3, he says, now listen to what he says he is really looking forward to about heaven. As I've pondered the meaning of the memory of the music, it seems curious. I would have expected the most memorable experience to be something I had seen or the physical embrace of a loved one. Yet, above everything else, I cherish those sounds. And at times, I think I can't wait to hear them again, in person. It's what I look forward to. I want to see everybody, but I know I'll be with them forever. I want to experience everything heaven offers. But most of all, I want to hear those never-ending songs again. So can you be, can you be content in heaven and filled with joy in heaven and experience the glory of heaven and enjoy heaven and long for it and have it be a wonderful, wonderful experience even without ever seeing Christ? According to Don Piper, yes. According to the Bible, no. Because heaven is where Christ is. And Christ is what makes heaven heaven. Being with the Savior. John Piper, again, never to be confused with Don Piper. Remember, John Piper good, Don Piper bad. John Piper says in his book, God is the Gospel, quote, If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be? I hope not. If you could, your hope is all in the wrong place. If you could be satisfied with all of that and never have Christ, then you don't have Christ. That's it. You don't have Christ. No true Christian could be satisfied with heaven, with all of those things, without having the Savior present. Samuel Rutherford said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without Thee, it would be a hell to me. 
And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Martin Luther said the same thing. He said, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without Him. Why? Because heaven is where Christ is. And heaven without Christ is hell. And hell with Christ is heaven. Because Christ is what is offered to us in the Gospel. That is the blessed hope. That is the glory of heaven. That is the delights and the pleasures and the bliss of heaven. David in Psalm 16, in that prophetic psalm, which speaks of the resurrection of Christ, said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you... uh, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David is looking forward to heaven and he says it is in the presence of God that is fullness of joy. Modern ideas about heaven is that we could have heaven without the presence of God and still be full of joy. No, you can't. Not according to Scripture. Psalm 84, verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. What is it that we long for? What is it that we look forward to? Nothing less than the very presence of Jesus Christ Himself. We get to see Him. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. We will perpetually and unendingly and permanently reside with him and be with him. The shepherd with his sheep, the bridegroom with his bride, the Lord with his church, never to be parted and never to be separated and never to ever fear that there is even the possibility of being separated from him. That is what makes heaven, heaven. Heaven is for us a prepared place. He has promised to personally return for us and to perpetually and permanently reside with his people. This is the very thing that Jesus said he desired. And I close with this verse, John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's his prayer in John 17. Father, I desire that those whom you have given to me will be with me where I am. He wants his people with him. Is it because you are so good? Is it because you're so lovable? Is it because heaven just isn't heaven without you in it? Is that why it is? You know why He desires to be with us? Because the Father has given a people to the Son. And the Son loves the Father, and so the Son loves those whom have been given to Him by the Father. And He wants to be with His people, and He desires to be with His people, and He has promised, I will return for my people, whom He has saved and sanctified and secured, and we will be together forever. That is the promise of Scripture. We have His Word on that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the blessed hope that we have as Your people. That we look forward to being with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that You would increase our love for Him and increase our expectation of that time and of that great blessing. May we never cherish the gifts that You have given to us more than the giver of the gifts. And in heaven, we know that we will be able to stand in Your presence and to glorify You and honor you, and love you, and think only of you, and it will be our delight to do that. It will be our great blessing to do that, and we will never have any inclination to do anything other than that. We look forward to being rid of sin in this life, but only because it mars our vision of you, and our ability to think on you, and to to communicate and fellowship with you. Thank you for the blessing of heaven that is prepared for your people. But most of all, thank you for the giver of every good gift our Lord Jesus Christ, who has secured that blessing on behalf of His people. We look forward to His return, and we pray with John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.